Well, good morning, church. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Well, you can try Lenin theology if you want, but the truth of the matter is there is a heaven and hell is a real place. You can't imagine it away. I thought long and hard about a lighthearted way to introduce this morning's message. I'm sure that really doesn't surprise you. If you've been around here at all, you know my approach to diving into a passage of Scripture is to introduce it with some illustration that kind of grabs you and sheds some light on where we're headed. I was hoping for a clever story or some joke to lighten things up as I speak on the serious subject of hell this morning. And I did find some illustrations that might have worked, but as the week went on and as I reflected on the subject, honestly, jokes no longer seemed funny. As Peter Kreeth put it, of all the doctrines of Christianity, hell is the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to bear, and the first to be abandoned. And perhaps there's no doctrine more offensive than the teaching on hell. I mean, who wants to hear about eternal torment when we could be hearing about the love of God? Preaching on hell is not exactly at the top of the list for how to grow a mega church. It's not a subject that would likely draw large crowds. Matter of fact, many confessing Christians today may not directly deny the doctrine of hell, but it is pushed aside, softened, or completely ignored. Albert Moeller, theologian, minister, and president of Southern Baptist Seminary said this. He said, many evangelicals seek to find any way out of the biblical doctrine that's marked by so much awkwardness and embarrassment. It's a doctrine of hell and evangelical embarrassment. Well, Dr. Albert Moeller goes on to say, I like what he says, he says, hell is an assured reality, just as that's presented so clearly in the Bible. To run from this truth, to reduce the sting of sin and the threat of hell, is to pervert the gospel and to feed on lies. Hell is not up for a vote or open for revision. Will we surrender this truth, he asked, to modern skeptics? We must not. We must not. What we believe about hell is a must-have. And how we speak on it matters. It was D.L. Moody who said, no one should preach on the topic of hell without a tear in his eye. And I'm not sure about actual tears, but I get the sentiments. The attitude of preachers and the attitude of followers of Jesus should never be, oh, that's what they deserve. See, our demeanor matters. I'm reminded of Charles Haddon Spurgeon speaking to his students who were all preparing to be preachers. And he said to these uh, students about to be preachers, he said, hey, when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. And when you speak of hell, well, then your everyday face will do. Sadly, that's more true than it ought to be. Well, as I come to our subject today that speaks the eternal destiny of some to eternal conscious punishment in hell, and for others, eternal blessedness with the Lord in heaven, I do so honestly with a mix of emotions. 
There's tremendous joy, of course, for those who have put their trust in Jesus can look forward with great anticipation of what is to come in heaven. But there's true sadness for those who will pass from this life to the next, having put off and rejected the offer of salvation. Now, to speak of our eternal destiny would be to speak, obviously, of two places, heaven and hell. I'm going to spend the bulk of my time this morning on what we believe about hell. As uncomfortable as it may be, it'd be unloving of me to to just not speak of this reality. A pastor of a small country church was approached by a farmer who didn't like his sermons on hell, and the farmer got on the pastor's face and said, Reverend, there's no need to preach on hell. Preach about the meek and lowly Jesus. And the pastor answered, that's where I got my information about hell. Jesus said more about hell than Daniel, Isaiah, Paul, John, and Peter put together. And so turn with me then to what Jesus says about it and Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, and as you're turning there, I want to read Evangelical Free Church of America's statement of faith. It will be on your screen. It says, we believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation, eternal conscious punishment, and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord and the new heaven and the new earth to the praise of his glorious grace. Some of that's really tough to swallow. Well, it's with that statement right there that we wrap up our series on True North. And you being such a smart group, I'm sure you noticed that I skipped over our statement on our belief on the church, right? You all, yeah, you missed that one. Well, you know, that was intentional because I'll be doing a seven-week series in May on the church from selected passages from 1 Corinthians, so we'll come back to it. But Luke 16, Luke 16, what what I hope you go away with this morning is this. Unless we come to grips with the stark reality of hell, we will not fully appreciate the depths of what Jesus did for us. Unless we come to grips with the stark reality of hell, we will not fully appreciate the depths of what Jesus did for us. All right, we're going to be looking at Luke 16, 19 through 31, and uh, and I've organized the material around scenes, four scenes to be exact. So scene number one is two neighbors who never met. Scene number one is two neighbors who never met. And so I hope you have, and you're, you're looking at your Bibles here in Luke 16. And before we look, go to verse 19 in our passage this morning. I need to place what we're about to read into the bigger picture of what Jesus has been talking about in this chapter. If we were to go to the beginning of chapter 16, the first eight verses... We would see there that Jesus tells a very clever parable with a surprise twist to drive home the point of using our resources for eternal gains. And Jesus then continues that thought of the absurdity of trying to serve two masters. See, it isn't just challenging or difficult to serve two masters, meaning God and the worldly possessions. No, no, it is impossible, he says in verse 13, to serve two masters. It's like trying to walk in two different directions at the same time. It cannot be done. 
That's what he says about trying to serve two masters. It cannot be done. It's impossible. And this got a strong reaction from the Pharisees who loved money, it says in verse 14. And Jesus then included some words about the authority of the Scriptures, verses 16 through 18, which we'll end on in our section we're looking at this morning. He now, verse 19, tells them a story. Now, there's some discussion among Bible scholars and preachers whether this is a parable that he tells here, 19 through 31, or it's a real-life situation. I'll spare you the details. But in case you're wondering where I land on it, whether it's a parable or it's a real-life situation, I could point out to you that Jesus doesn't say it's a parable, which is often, though not always, is often the case when he introduces a parable. He doesn't say it here that it's a parable. I could also point to uh, that in no other parable does Jesus give a name to one of the characters as he does here. So in that way, it feels more like a true account of two individuals. On the other hand, it does read like a story. It has the characteristics of the other parables Jesus taught. So then I lean towards it being a parable. So take your pick. It doesn't really change the point or points to be made either way. There's really no sense getting all hung up on all of this. All right, Jesus says, verse 19, that was all introduction. Verse 19, Jesus says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Kind of gross. Well, we have two neighbors who might have lived close to each other, but their lives could have not been further apart. You have the rich man here who flaunted his wealth. He wore the best and most expensive clothing, purple, and that that day was the most expensive dye, and it was really reserved for royalty and the wealthy. And white linen, that was a luxury. And so this rich man, he was into conspicuous consumption. I think, you know, the rich man would have felt very comfortable living in our day in America. I mean, he was the epitome of the American dream. He had it all. He had it all. His neighbor, his neighbor was a poor man named Lazarus, not to be confused with the man Jesus called out from the grave. But this man, Lazarus, he had nothing. He didn't even have use of his legs As the verse says, he was laid there or brought there. He didn't walk there. He was brought there. He had sores on his back. He was malnourished. He was so hungry, he just wanted to get his hands on the trash. Because by the way here, in those days, in those days, the very rich would take a a kind of a chunk of bread and they'd use it as napkins Use that chunk of bread as a napkin to sop up all the grease and the dirt on their fingers. And then they'd take that chunk of bread and they'd they'd throw it on on the floor under the table. That's what they did. It says, Lazarus would have done anything just to have some of that dirty, grease-sopping bread. Oh, Lazarus was barely hanging on, but he was a survivor. Now, the name Lazarus is not incidental. Perhaps that's why, if it is a parable, Jesus gave this man a name. The name Lazarus means God has helped. 
God has helped. Everyone listening to this story and heard Lazarus and go, that means God has helped, would have said, how in the world is God helping this person? He God has helped? Well, by this world's standards, he's not blessed by God. And that day, especially among the Pharisees, it was commonly believed that to have wealth and possession meant God's favor was upon you. They equated wealth as proof of God's blessing. There's nothing new under the sun. There's still teaching out there today that says the same thing, right? We call it the prosperity gospel. And if you have this, then you're blessed by God. That's how some of that teaching goes. Well, I don't want to go on a side road on that one. But Jesus here, what I do want to point out, he gives this poor man dignity by giving him a name. The rich man who made a name for himself in the world, he went nameless. He went nameless before God. Now, I pause here and ask the question, and I ask myself the same question. What do you base your identity on? How much of your time and effort is given in this life to status and recognition? Are you living as a driven person, driven by the philosophy, you probably heard it, get all you can, can all you get, then sit on your can. Some are living for that. Is that what you're going after? All right, scene two. Death changes everything. Death changes everything. Lazarus and Nameless, they share one thing in common. Death. Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Okay, I don't think you have any choice. Verse 22, the time came and the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Did you see it? Death is no respecter of persons. Time came and they both died. Safe to say that Lazarus' poor body was disposed uh, without any real recognition, without any ceremony, probably did not receive a proper burial. The contrast is made, though, that the entire town likely showed up in honor uh, of the rich man at his funeral. The rich man, it says, received a proper burial. But as Colonel Sanders put it, there's no reason to be the richest man in the cemetery. (laughs) Who cares? But upon Lazarus' death, you see here that he might not have proper burial, but his soul was carried away by the angels. Don't make too much out of that and placed by the side of Father Abraham himself. Because in Jewish thought, heaven is where Abraham lived. But the picture here for Lazarus is one of bliss and contentment and and, and happiness and um, peace and rest. He was in a beautiful place. The one who made a name for himself in this world who built his identity on everything but God, it says in verse 23, he went to hell where he was in torment. At one time, the rich man did all the feasting. The poor man did the begging. This changes everything. Death changes everything. There's feasting for the poor man. There's suffering and torment for the other. Now, if you go away from this story with the conclusion that poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell, you, you would have missed the point. That, that's not the moral of the story. 
That's not Jesus' point in telling this story. What should be clear, however, is that death changes everything. The insider becomes the outsider. The outsider becomes the insider. The categories that define success in the eyes of the world are not the same categories that define success in the eyes of God. What good is it, Jesus asks elsewhere, to gain the whole world, yet lose your soul? What good is it? Oh, the games people play now, every night and every day now, never meaning what they say now, never saying what they mean. While they while away their hours in their ivory towers till they're covered up with flowers in the back of a black limousine. They were all supposed to go la-da-da-da-da-da-da, whatever goes. I'm not sure. But that song points out, you can give your whole life to making it big in this world, but for what? An eternal destiny waits us all. In literature, there's a, there's a story told a number of different ways, actually, but it's a story of a man. You might have heard the story. It's a story of a man who opens up a newspaper, and as he looks at the newspaper, he discovers the date on the newspaper is six months in advance of the time he is living. And he begins to read through the newspaper, and he discovers stories about events that have not yet taken place. He then goes to the sports page, and there are scores of games not yet played. He, he turns to the financial page and discovers a report of the rise or fall of different stocks and bonds six months out. He realizes, this could make me a wealthy man. A few large bets on an underdog team he knows will win will make him wealthy. Investments in stocks that are now low but will get high will fatten his portfolio. He is absolutely thrilled about finding this newspaper. He then turns the page of the newspaper and he comes to the obituary column and he sees his picture and his story. Right there on the paper six months out. This changes everything. The knowledge of his death changes his view about his wealth, and it should. And this is what we should see at this point in the story. All right, scene three, the great chasm, the great chasm. Look at me, um, as we see here in verse 24, the rich man is, uh, becomes the beggar. He's begging for relief. He calls out to Abraham, verse 24, Father Abraham. Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. And whatever we make of this fire, it's likely something far worse than literal fire. Clearly, clearly though, the place where this rich man is living out his eternal destiny is one of physical and spiritual misery. Folks, you don't see him partying it up with his friends as some imagine hell to be. Oh, he's going to have a great time in hell. Or as one leader of a heavy metal band figured hell to be, he said, it's going to be a more comfortable place for me because everyone I know will be there. And I wouldn't be allowed to do anything in heaven that would be any fun. Wow. Many have bought that lie. The picture here is of Agony. The rich man, he calls out for some relief. Notice here, the rich man does not ask to get out of hell, but he's asking for Lazarus to come to him in hell. And he's still ordering others around. Hey, Abraham, I want you to do this. 
He still thinks Lazarus is someone who should go serve him. Touch the tip of my tongue, because you serve me. <laughs> Such arrogance, even in hell. And Abraham says no to the rich man's request, verse 25. But Abraham replied, son, meaning of physical descent. He's probably speaking of him as being a Jewish brother. He says, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in agony. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, we must be careful not to press the details too far, okay? But what do we know? What do we know? Well, first of all, we know, we know that there's a great divide that separates heaven and hell that cannot be crossed. That's one thing we know. Secondly, we know from this passage as well as other scriptures that our destinies are determined at death. There are no second chances. See, the thing is, it is in this life the choice must be made. The rich man chose to go his own way, to be the master of his fate, to be the captain of his soul. And he's kind of getting what he wanted. And then some. Thirdly, we know, we know that the personality survived death in a conscious state. Again, I don't want to press it too far. I think it back, it, that can be backed up with other, not I think, I know it can be backed up with other passages of Scripture. And lastly, we see here that heaven and hell are fixed real places. There was a chaplain who did not believe in hell, so they finally had to let him go. And those in charge over him went to him to tell him the news of his dismissal. And they said to him, they said, if there's no hell, chaplain, we don't need you. And if there is a hell, we don't want you to deceive us anymore. Let him go. See, hell is real. It's, a, it's an awful place of torment. Church, that is why there is nothing worse than to tell someone to go to hell. Nothing worse than that. Would we really wish the terrible place on hell on anyone? No, church, our hearts ought to be broken over those whose eternal painful destination is separation from God. Our lives and our, and our words and our demeanors should be inviting others to hear the heart of God that says, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. All right, scene four. Scene four, adequate information. Adequate information is given. After Abraham reminds the rich man that Lazarus does not work for him, that his days of luxury are over, the man then asks that Lazarus be sent back to his family to warn his five brothers about the reality of hell. So verse 28, he says, And I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn, warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Now, first pass... It seems as though this request is coming from a heart of compassion, wanting to spare his five brothers the torment he is experiencing. And there certainly is a touch of that. There is. But think with me on this. I also wonder, I also wonder that what's going on here is that this rich man is suggesting that he did not have, he himself did not have adequate information to avoid hell. Might there be a little blame shifting going on here? 
At least give them, my five brothers, what they need to know to not come here. The opportunity I did not have. And Abraham refuses the man's second request, and he says in verse 29, they have Moses, they have the prophets, let them listen to them. Rich man's reaction, verse 30, no, 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 Father Abraham, you don't have this right. If someone from the dead goes to them, goes to my five brothers, they will repent. The man's logic is that his five brothers would see someone such as Lazarus come back from the dead, that they would then repent and they would believe. That's his logic. His deduction is they don't have adequate information to escape Hell, they need to see something miraculous. And the answer from Abraham is that people in this life have been well informed through scriptures. Look at verse 31. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. They don't listen, what he's saying is, they don't listen to what they are already hearing from God and what God's already given them. They won't listen to that person who came back from the grave. Now, I I don't know about you, I still hear this argument today. People will say, I've had people say to me, if Jesus would appear to me, if I could see him, if I could just touch him, if he'd show up right in my room, right here, right now, I would believe. Not necessarily. See, we either listen to God's word or we don't. Nothing sensational or miraculous would change that. We think. We need something more compelling than the Bible. The Bible just isn't enough. But listen, the truth is, the truth is, this is for all of us. If we aren't changed by the Bible, we won't be changed by anything. Won't matter. What will you do then with what we see, what we read, what we hear? On April 2nd, 1801, during the Battle of Copenhagen, the British fleet was attacking the combined navies of Denmark and Norway. Three British ships ran aground, so the Admiral Hyde Parker sent word by the flags to Horatio Nelson, who was in one of those ships, to break off the engagement and withdraw. Retreat. Get out of here. That's in order. But mesmerized by the thrill of the battle, Horatio Nelson ignored the command to retreat. He said to his people, this day we may all die, and it will be glorious, as these cannonballs were smashing into a ship. When pressed again by his first mate to respond to Parker's order, Nelson told his flag captain, Thomas Foley, you know, Foley, I only have one eye. I have the right to be blind sometimes. And then Nelson held up his his telescope to his right eye, which was his blind eye, and he said, I I don't see any signal. I can't see any orders. (laughs) Now, matter of fact, that's where we get our phrase, turn a blind eye. Right there. Which means to ignore undesirable information. I don't really want to see that. I don't like what I'm hearing right now. I don't, can't see it. And many people today are like Horatio Nelson in life. They've heard the message. They've heard the gospel. But they put the telescope up to the blind eye and they say, I can't see it. I don't understand it. This just doesn't make sense. Are you looking for more proof? Don't turn a blind eye. Jesus offers a much better destination. He says what we need to know right here. Now, Jesus' words here, of course, are prophetic. 
He says, even if someone rises from the dead, they wouldn't believe. It's prophetic because as we're going to celebrate in a couple of weeks, Jesus did rise from the dead, but people still didn't believe. And I often wonder, this is kind of just where my mind goes, that when Jesus rose from the dead, that he didn't go to Pilate's house, ring his doorbell and go, surprise, here I am, I am alive. He doesn't do that. I think I would have done that. Why not reappear on one of Pharisees' um, uh, front porch? Just kind of sit there, he goes by, and go. Or in front of the Sanhedrin. Because Jesus' appearance after his resurrection was irrefutable. But countless people still refused him. There have been times that I have shared the gospel with something, someone and And honestly, I I would call it a a slam-dunk explanation of the gospel. And they're nodding and they're going, yeah, hmm, yeah, no, that all makes sense. And I'm going, this is it. They're going to come to Christ. And they go, no, I don't want to put my trust in them. I go, what? It isn't for lack of information. It's a matter of choice. It's an act of the will. The choice is our choice, but that choice will determine our destiny. We can reject him or we can trust him today and know that the end of this life means eternal life in heaven or reject him and know or put it off and know where our destination is. All right, I I know this isn't an easy topic. Believe me, it wasn't easier to, to preach on than it was for you to listen to it. But hell is necessary. It's necessary for knowing that there will be a day when God will put everything right. That justice will be served. I mean, what kind of God would he be if he were not angry at injustice and didn't do something about it? People say, no, 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 God is a God of love. This, no, we can't talk about this hell thing. Listen, the fact that God is love makes hell necessary. Chew on that. Think that through a little bit. We actually make God less loving by eliminating hell. What we believe about hell matters. Because unless we come to grips with the stark reality of hell, we will not fully appreciate the depths of what Jesus did for us. And I borrow that thought really from Tim Keller who went on to say this. He says his body, meaning Jesus' body, was being destroyed in the worst possible way, but that was a flea bite compared to what was happening to his soul. When he cried out that his God had forsaken him, he was experiencing hell itself. When Jesus was cut off from God the Father, he went into the deepest pit and most powerful furnace beyond all imagining, and he did it voluntarily for us. See, in his love, Jesus took action. Jesus took hell on the cross so that we don't have to. He was forsaken by God. He was in agony. He was in isolation. And what he experienced on the cross was far worse than all of our deserved hells combined. It's only because of the doctrine of judgment in hell that Jesus' proclamation of grace and love is so brilliant and astounding. Church, how do we respond to that of what he did for us? Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the size of your bill determines how you respond to someone who pays for it. 
You only know how to respond when you understand the size, scope, and magnitude of the bill. Now, perhaps, perhaps this has happened to you, that you've pulled through uh, Starbucks or that other place, Dunkin's. (laughs) I don't know why you would, but let's just stay with me. That you pulled through either Starbucks or Dunkin's drive-thru, and as you get up to the counter and uh, up to the window, the barista informs you that the person in the car in front of you has already paid for your coffee. You're thankful for that thought, that very small act of kindness, but it it can kind of impact and affect your mood. Kind of feel pretty positive after that. Or, Or perhaps when you hand your credit card to the server at a fancy restaurant after eating appetizers and the entrees and you splurge for dessert, that you learn that someone else has already covered it. Your entire meal has been paid for. How do you respond to those moments likely will be different than your cup of coffee being paid for. Okay, let's go one more. What if someone paid the full balance of your house mortgage? That would dictate a different response to the one who paid your debt. I realize these examples come up short and capturing the magnitude of our sin debt, the scope of our sinful rebellion against our holy God. But Christ did more than pick up the tab on our coffee or pay our dinner bill or even our mortgage. It was a bill we could never, ever, ever pay, ever. Our response, church, our response, let's not live as though that he only covered the price of a cup of coffee. Follow Jesus. Don't turn a blind eye to what Jesus now asks of us in response to what he has done for us. Don't turn a blind eye to that. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. That's what we're going to sing. Let me pray. God, thank you for the wonderful truth that this does demonstrate your love, and I pray that it came through this morning. Honestly, I'd prefer to avoid this, this subject. Honestly. It would be pretty unloving. And it wouldn't be true to the scriptures. So God, we need need to hear this. It matters. Because we think of how what you did for us is that we could escape the torment of hell. We thank you and can hardly even express it in the song as we're going to do right now and saying how marvelous and how wonderful it is. Capture our hearts with it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.